Hello and welcome to The Medical Take, a podcast by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow. My name is Daniel Liner, I am an acute medicine trainee in the west of Scotland and today I'm joined by... My name's Dave Hunter, I'm one of the cardiology registrars in the west of Scotland, currently out of programme doing some research. So Dave has been very kind to join us today uh, to talk about something that I think can cause the rest of us who are non-cardiology a little bit of anxiety and that is ECGs and common arrhythmias. Um... We all know that cardiologists love nothing more than being phoned about funny ECGs at all hours of the day. So Dave has been exceptionally kind to join us and talk about that today. So we should be going through where to find your common guidelines, a little bit on defibrillators and then common arrhythmias you may come across in the wards and what to do about them, when to get cardiology involved. So from there, uh, I'm going to hand over to Dave to start us off. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. So um, the, the first thing to um, say is... Yeah, these these kind of issues, rhythm issues, uh, fast and slow heart rates can cause a lot of anxiety um, in receiving wards, um, particularly if it's not something you're used to dealing with. Um, what I want the main take-home points to be is thinking, you know, don't overcomplicate it. There is a very simple approach that you can take to, uh, to any of these. Um, and on that note, I'd like to signpost um, to the ALS guidelines. They're a very good backup if you're not sure. There's the tacky arrhythmia guidelines um, for the fast heart rates mm-hmm. and there's the bradyarrhythmia arrhythmia guidelines for the slow heart rates. If you work your way through those flow charts, you're not going to go far wrong. Yeah, I don't think people would go wrong by just re-familiarising themselves with them. Um, And if you're feeling very academic today, you may want to pause here and bring them up to have a wee look while you're listening. Uh, I'm assuming you haven't, so we're just going to go on. And the uh, the other point is, uh, you know, when you're dealing with some of these patients, they can be unstable, um, and you may need to use uh, the um, the arrest trolley and the defibrillators. So it's very important that you know um, where your defibrillator is in your department and how yeah. they work, and also if they have a pacing function. Um, this is something that we should be doing as trainees, making sure we're familiar with where the local defib is on the ward. Yeah, absolutely. And I know I've certainly been guilty at the beginning of the year, new hospital, of just telling myself, I will go and find the defibs. I will have a look at them and I never get quite round to it. Um, usually, if you're staying within the same health board, they will be broadly the same. However, no matter if you're moving, just find your defibs. It's becoming more and more common these days for downstream wards, kind of general medicine wards, to have automated defibrillators. Mm-hmm. So they tend to not have pacing functions, things like that. So people definitely want to find out where their uh, manual defibrillators are and to get comfortable with them. If you're not, I'm sh- if you're not comfortable with them, most hospitals will have a resus officer. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm sure um, you could contact your local resuscitation officer who would be more than happy to go through those things, tell you where your defibs are and go through the functions with you if you're not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the other thing is, if the only thing you've got to hand is an automated defibrillator. There's no shame in using that. No, at not at all. Yeah. If, if you, if you, yeah, absolutely. Get using it, and, and 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 even if you need something like pacing, you know, till something arrives, and you can. Without again, we keep it simple, not overcomplicating it. But there, said most of the AEDs, the automatic defibrillators, you can override as well. Mm-hmm. But this is less of a talk on ALS and more of a talk yes. on arrhythmias. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll press on. Yes, yeah. So um, I suppose the the general um, scenario here would be you're working in acute receiving, and um, you know you might be at the um, the front door in IEU, and someone comes and hands you an ECG and the heart rate's 150 beats per minute. Um, happens most days. Happens most days, yeah. Um, 
Now, can you just sign that for me, Dave? <laughs> um, now, you know, the first the first thing you're really going to be wanting to do is find out how the patient is, obviously. So it sounds obvious, but um, an ECG out of context doesn't mean anything. Um, and I think we can often jump to either that looks fine or, oh gosh, without actually looking at the patient. So totally. So yeah. you're wanting probably a full set of OBS and to eyeball the patient. Well. Yeah, yeah. And the, the support workers who are doing the ECGs can give you a quick rundown of why the patient's there, what they look like. Um, I'm going to touch briefly on you know, what, what you do, do you do if you know, someone's got a heart rate of 140, 150 beats per minute and it's clearly sinus. It sounds obvious, but um, sinus tachycardia isn't something that you should be reaching for drugs for. I think that's important to say. Um, there's a reason that their heart rate's fast, so you need to treat the reason that the heart rate's fast rather than reaching for the drugs. So, for instance, if they're in pain, treat the pain. If they're septic, treat their sepsis. It sounds obvious, um, but you just remember sinus tachycardia. Physiological response. Yes, physiological um, response. Usually a response, as you say, to something, um, and often a sign that the patient perhaps is unwell and mm -hmm. you need to do examination mm -hmm. and potentially be led by further tests. Yeah. Um, I suppose only other thing I'm thinking there, as you say, is I'm wanting to know blood pressure. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Are they well with it? Are they are they unwell with it? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I would like to you saying this tachys, you know, like hypotensive, you, know, you want to be reaching for your fluids rather than mm -hmm. uh, rather than necessarily anything else. Okay, okay. Because uh, I think we've all seen, I think sometimes your first instinct, as you say, some people do reach for drugs and that is just to make the number better. Yeah. Um, and that, that won't fix the patient. Yeah. So yeah. sinus tachy, physiological response. If you're unsure and the patient's unwell, you know, call a senior, get get another pair of eyes. So, yeah. yes, no, absolutely. I think that's worth saying. Yeah. Um, now, moving on from the sinus tachy, um, you know, the most common rhythm issue that you're going to see in medical receiving is going to be atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. Um, atrial fibrillation can touch on first as a broader um, broader thing to talk about. So someone comes yeah, in... We could do a whole episode on atrial fibrillation. Do, yeah, very easily. Uh, well, let's talk about the person that comes in in atrial fibrillation and their heart rate's 150, 160, 180, whatever it is. So, yeah, scary number. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do about it? Always go back to first principles with these patients. So how do they look? Are they stable? Are they unstable? Yes. Go for your A to E approach. Um, if their blood pressure is low, why is their blood pressure low? Yeah, are they dry? Are they are septic? They, are they septic? Are they in failure? Is yeah. it the heart rate that's doing it? Yeah. Is it the heart rate that's doing it? Yeah. And that will therefore determine what you do. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, so yeah, you, you can work around down your ALS guidelines if that's um, something that's helpful to you. Mm -hmm. okay, so you've got your patient in atrial fibrillation, the ECG is showing a rate of 160, 180, so scary, scary number. Yeah, scary, scary, scary number. Um, so let's take aside, say they don't have anything else going on, this is the only thing they've come in with. It is. And it's not uncommon, I'd say, maybe, it's certainly DGH have worked in, once a shift a patient comes in with new AF, mm -hmm. they may be aware or unaware of the palpitations, mm -hmm. but again, as you say, putting sepsis to the side, but other things, this is just a patient purely... Yeah, for the fast heart rate. Yeah, I think what um, yeah, what can cause people some anxiety is: do you go rate control or rhythm control? And again, what I want to emphasise is: don't overcomplicate it. Okay, don't overcomplicate it and be safe. When we're talking about rhythm control, we are talking about getting people, you know, giving someone a medication to get them back into sinus rhythm, like amiodarone would be the most common one that we would use um, and would be the one that I would advocate using if you're going down the route of rhythm control. Um, however, 
You should only be doing that if you can say there is a definite time of onset in the last 48 hours. I'm happy this hasn't been happening on and off. If you're not sure, that's okay. What you can do... I have to put my hand up here, even as a, a relatively senior attorney. I tend to err on the side of we don't know. Because yeah. uh, I, I think my mind often gets changed by the amount of patients who say, do you know, I've not had any palpitations at all. And I just take it as given that we don't know when this started. Yeah, and I'd say that's fine because rate control is perfectly safe. Mm-hmm. Um, rate control is perfectly fine for um, almost all of, all of these patients in the first instance. Um, you can anticoagulate them with therapeutic heparin and we can then have a think about it. If they stay in AF, we can think about if we want to put them back in rhythm at yeah, 24 hours or however long. If we've started anticoagulating them, you've got a bit, of, a bit of time to do that. And say we've got junior doctors listening, we're talking about them seeing these patients in your GP assessment area, your medical receiving area. Rate's high. We're not sure when it started. We're going to go down a rate control route. What, what as, a, as a cardiology trainee, how do you approach that? So you want to assess them, see if they're overloaded, if they're in failure. Uh, if they're not in failure, then you can reasonably start them on a beta blocker. So bisoprolol, 2.5 milligrams. Uh, uh, the thing, if you're given if you're given bisoprolol, it's a long-acting beta blocker. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do is you give 2.5 milligrams and you stop. Okay. Okay. Um, you don't come back an hour later and give them another 2.5. Okay. Because what you can end up doing is giving them, yeah, 7.5 or 10, 10 milligrams of bisoprol all over a few hours. Again, got to put my hand up and say, I've been guilty. Absolutely, I've been guilty yeah. of that in the past. Um, and you, if this person's beta blocker naive, you can you, they can you can suddenly get them going too far the other way. Okay. So if you're going down the rate control route, give them a dose of beta blocker and stop. And when you say that, again, this is, I've got to admit, this is relatively new to me. I'm probably guilty of going the other way. I, I think probably a lot of people listening are as well. Are we talking... Tomorrow, by the time we give them another dose, yeah, yeah, you can increase it the next day. Okay, this is assuming that you've got a stable patient. Yeah, absolutely, and and we won't overcomplicate things too much here. But what you're saying is, don't go back and give kind of multiple doses within Mm -hmm. span of three, four hours. Yeah, you will have patients in coronary care who have AF that will be sitting with a heart rate of 150, 160 for days. Yeah, and we titrate things up gradually. Okay, Um, yeah. The, the old adage of start low, go slow, mm-hmm. yeah, that's um, very relevant for these patients. Okay. Um, and we mentioned these are the patients, and I, I suppose that people need to be aware that there are contraindications for beta blockers, respiratory disease, asthma, these sort of things. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'll, I'll always take these things into uh, consideration for your patients. Um, you've mentioned that this is for patients who are not in failure. Yeah. What if I've got a patient in front of me who I've got evidence or I suspect, you know, JPP's up, a bit breathless, mm-hmm. x-rays maybe some infiltrates, what, what do you think? So in that case, um, I suppose when you're talking about, when we are talking about beta blockers, an alternative to them would be your long-acting calcium channel blockers if you're going for okay. something for rate control. But again, I wouldn't give that to someone in failure. If someone's in failure, give them diuretic. Mm-hmm. Um, I like a good starting dose if I'm giving IV 50 milligrams furosemide intravenously. Um, and if you're wanting to give them something for rate control, digoxin. Again, do you find that, again, feel free to not be tied down with these questions, but um, if you've got someone going fast who isn't a bit of failure, we treat the failure, will they slow down? Can do. Mm-hmm. There's uh, no, no harm in giving them a bit of digoxin to start with anyway. Yeah. Um, 
uh, loading doses. Um, again, that's something that uh, people can get a bit anxious about. Yeah. Uh, BNF, if you look that up, it says 0. 0.75 to 1.5 milligrams over 24 hours. Yeah. So you could ask six different uh, six different cardiology registrars or consultants how they do it and you might get six different answers i have never come across that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but i I like you know if they're decent weights relatively young 500 micrograms is a a stat oral dose 500 Mm -hmm. micrograms six hours later Mm -hmm. and then start them on something regular so one two five micrograms once a day yeah and i think that last point is the bit often gets missed out mm-hmm. and again got to put my hand up when i'm on a busy night shift i i'm quite guilty of missing that out as well but especially when things are busy maybe it's over a weekend it's not uncommon to find someone who's been through medical receiving fast af loaded with the jocks and loaded you know well with the jocks had a good response to it and now they're on a downstream ward and no one thought about that regular dose and they, they slip back into af so yeah make, make sure you're you're dotting uh, your i's and crossing your t's yeah. Although if they go back into sinus, you shouldn't continue the digit. It's an important point. There to we know. go. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's that's kind of your um, initial. Like if you've got someone who's got AF fast rate, don't get too excited about thinking about rhythm con- pharmacological rhythm control. Mm-hmm. Rate control is perfectly acceptable. If you really think someone should get rhythm control, um, and you're comfortable making that decision. IV amiodrone is a reasonable thing to use. Um, if you're if you're really not sure, it's something that can be discussed um, with your local cardiology team. Um, when we're taking atrial fibrillation in the context of you know, taking it a bit more context, what else is going on with your patient? Yep. So, and to remember, atrial fibrillation can be driven by other things. So, for instance, sepsis. Mm-hmm. We've all seen someone who's septic who's got um, AF or a rapid rate. Again, heart rate 150, 160. Mm-hmm. Uh, blood pressure's borderline low. Mm-hmm. The temperature's 39. They're coughing up green stuff. Yep. They've got crackles all the way down one lung. Yep. That patient, of course, needs antibiotics. If their sepsis treated. Yeah. The danger if you start giving these people pharmacological treatment, um, digoxin, you'll pro- you'll be all right with uh-huh. you'll probably be all right with but if you start giving these people beta blockers then you're blocking the sympathetic nervous response Which, and you can make things worse because they're having a physiological reaction to the fact that they are septic and yes they're, they're unstable from a cardiovascular point of view they're yeah. working hard from that point of view yeah. um the, my the way i was taught was always that you treat you know treat the sepsis and then once they are well review the state of the atrial fibrillation oh, yeah. um do we still anticoagulate those patients um, I obviously would, yeah. it's context specific are they bleeding etc but yeah if they um, yeah if their CHAS2 VASC score is high um, and they've got no contraindication these people are going to need anticoagulated anyway yeah so yeah you can give give them therapies get heparin in the first instance yeah. if you're um, yeah if you're unsure of anything yeah if someone's got new AF and they're obviously going to need long term anticoagulation if there's no contraindication, it's perfectly reasonable to just start these people on a DOAC. Yeah, discuss with the patient, discuss with the pharmacy team. They, mm-hmm. Yeah, they get their education. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the only thing we, that's just come to mind for me is we haven't mentioned so far, I suppose when we're approaching any arrhythmia, include, and I'm 
comes to mind with the AF, it's our commonest one. We are doing our full electrolyte panel. We are taking our magnesium, our calcium, our potassium, and TFTs, things like that. Anything else on that initial blood screen when they go and see them? I think you've hit most of it there. Your your thyroid function, your potassium, your magnesium, your calcium, correct them if they're abnormal. I'm thinking of all the things I do before I phone my cardiology (laughs) reg. When we're saying correct, so particularly potassium, when we're saying correct potassium, you want that potassium to be between 4 and 4.5 because that's the level your heart's happiest. 3.5 is actually still low in this context, so you want to get it up a bit. Um, but I learned, I learned that doing my cardiology process. <laughs> it's fine. No, it's Daniel. It's not fine. He's too up for. Um, yeah, and that's like you know, you see three point five. It's not red. It must be okay. You're, um, it's something that will very much be drilled into you if you're in a cardiology ward. But um, I suspect isn't mentioned much outside of that setting. And. Um, do you, should we talk about what to do if these patients are unstable, or would you like mm-hmm. to save the, the dramatic stuff for the more interesting uh, tachycardias? I think we can talk about So we're talking about atrial fibrillation here mm-hmm. still. Uh, if these people are unstable, so they've got a low blood pressure, again, look I at I guess your, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. so look at your patient. Um, if someone's got a blood pressure of 70 or 80 systolic, how do they look? Mm-hmm. Do they look comfortable? Because if they look comfortable, then actually you can probably give them, give them some ditch. If they're overloaded, give them a bit of fruzamide. Mm. If they're septic, give them fluids. You know, mm. correct what you can correct. Um, probably quite to, to make clear, those, those are still sick patients and probably should be in a monitored area if their blood pressure's yeah, that low. De- definitely, yeah. Um, you know, get them catheterized. Are they peeing? Is their kidney function okay? So look at all of these things. Mm-hmm. If you've got someone with those parameters who looks unwell, yes, then, you know, working your way down your ALS algorithm, that's someone that you should be thinking about shocking. So I guess that's what I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's something that scares quite a lot of mm-hmm. trainees, understandably. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our, our cardiology colleagues, yourselves, your, your colleagues, are much more comfortable with, with, with shocking mm-hmm. patients. And I've got to admit, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm an ALS instructor and I don't do it all that often. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what if they think that their patient is going to need shocked, what kind of things should they be thinking about? Yeah, so um, you want to be, um, if they're in that situation, they're peri-resty. Agreed. So yeah, absolutely. Perfectly reasonable to put out double T, double two, pull that emergency buzzer, get as much help as you can get. Right. Um, the practicalities of doing a, um, a shock for someone who's got a pulse. Mm-hmm. So um, get your defib pads attached. Yep. If you've got anaesthetic support there, very, very valuable because um, they can help manage your airway and manage your sedation. And you may get that with, with wherever you work, you may get anaesthetic support with your double two, double two, or you may have to phone them additionally. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. So yeah, important to know who you're going to get with yep. your arrest team when they come. Sometimes you're not going to have that support. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the thing, the thing to, to yeah, the thing to yeah. focus on, the thing to uh, realize in this setting is these patients are very unwell and mm-hmm. very unstable, um, and you know, uh, people listening here are um, unlikely to be familiar with you know, shocking people all the time. You're doing DC cardioversion all the time. So you want to get the support there, which is going to be your arrest team, your anaesthetic support. Yes. And if need be, um, there is cardio- cardiology on call for a reason. Um, and we can be phoned to help out in these situations as well. And our friendly neighbourhood cardiologist will come along and give us a hand. If available, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything else you want to touch on atrial fibrillation? So we've mentioned uh, how to approach these patients. Are they well and they aren't, or are they unwell? 
if there's an underlying cause, the, our, our colleagues have to treat the cause, mm -hmm. recognizing when they're unwell, mm -hmm. um, when to shock. And we, we've talked about our, our common kind of rate control and rhythm control uh, approaches. Anything else? I think that's the main points for yeah. atrial fibrillation. And it is the commonest one that we will come across. Um, what's next on our list? Well, moving on from atrial fibrillation, you get atrial flutter, which um, to, for the purposes of this chat, atrial flutter, I would manage no differently to atrial fibrillation. The differences between flutter and fibrillation is um, flutter is much more sensitive to electricity. Okay. Um, and it'll cardiovert at a lower um, a lower voltage. I did not know that. Lower power. Um, and it's it's more resistant to pharmacology. There you go. But I'm not advocating that you just, as soon as you see someone in flutter, you just start shocking. No. So yeah. bro broadly, what we're saying to take away is the approach should be roughly the same? Yeah, the approach should be the same. Right. What you can get with flutter is um, it can look very, it can be very difficult to tell what it is. Mm -hmm. right. No, I agreed. Yeah. Um, flutter will, you know, the Intrinsic rate for flutter is about 300 beats per minute. And your AV node's going to lock that down to like anything divisible by uh, like 300 divisible by two, three, or four. So mm -hmm. you'll end up with rates of about 150, about 100, about 75. At slower rates, it can be pretty obvious that it's flutter. Mm -hmm. But at the rates of 150, it can sometimes be very difficult to tell. So when you're looking at these ECGs, it can look a bit like a sinus tachy. Mm -hmm. um, or it can look like you know, a regular narrow complex tachy or a supraventricular tachycardia. And sometimes it can look so fast that you're not actually quite sure what you're looking at. Yeah. So complexes run into each other a little bit. Yeah. So you've got a narrow complex rhythm. You're not sure what it is. It's a nice segue into talking about that. Um, so what do you do in that situation if you're really not sure what rhythm you're dealing with? Yep. Again, you can fall back on your ALS guidelines. Keep it simple. Phone a cardiologist. No, <laughs> <laughs> we're we're still friends, Daniel. <laughs> For now. <laughs> so, what should we do if we think we've got something like that? Yeah. So, you go back to your basics again. Look at your look at your patient. Is there something obvious that you need to correct? You know, temperature, blood pressure, check all these things. Examine them. Are they obviously in failure? Mm -hmm. um, and if they're yeah, looking pretty stable, and you're not sure what rhythm is, you don't know what you want to give them, you can try things like bagel maneuvers. Um, if they don't work, then you're looking at actually something along the lines of aden an adenosine challenge. Mm -hmm. Now, again, this is something that people may not be familiar with. So if you're wanting to give an adenosine challenge, I think the first thing I would say is, if you've not given it before... Know what you're doing. Yeah, know what you're doing. Right. Um... We're not condoning just running around the wars doing a denizen challenge. Absolutely not. Make no, sure no, you know no. what you're doing. Yeah, make sure you know what you're doing. If you're looking to do an adenosine challenge, now we're talking about medical receiving areas. Mm -hmm. Certainly the receiving areas I've worked in have all had access to somewhere that's got monitoring. Yes, yeah, so it's something to that if you're doing a denizen challenge, your patient must be on cardiac monitoring. It must be on monitoring. And hook them up to an ECG machine that can print a rhythm strip. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I've done it before when I've been, you know, um, in my um, earlier training days, sometimes occasionally now, even after giving the adenosine challenge, when I'm just looking at what's in front of me on the ECG, I'm still not that sure. Good, good to know that you guys <laughs> don't have those perfect ECG reading eyes either sometimes. That, that reassures me somewhat. Um, now, if you've done the, the adenosine, if you have done an adenosine challenge mm -hmm. and you've not had a rhythm strip running, um, 
and you're not sure of what it showed, no one else is going to be able to tell you. No. So no. you want that evidence there. So even if you're not sure after, someone else can have a look. Your cardiology trainee, your cardiology consultant, specialist, or even you know your medical consultant on call will be more familiar with these than you are. Um, other things to take away, you know, we have said several times, make sure you know what you're doing. Make sure the patient knows what's coming. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's that drug that you're taught about in medical school that uh, causes an immediate feeling of impending doom. Um, so patients need to be uh, entirely aware before we do that. And I've had a full spectrum of responses. You, you'll have done it again much more than I have. But I've had people go, is that it? And I've had people genuinely feel that like they're dying. So you, you have to let the patient know what they're in for. Yeah, and it, it really it, the, the the point of your adenosine challenge is you're trying to identify what the underlying rhythm is. So mm-hmm. it causes, correct me if I'm wrong, but it is you know transient complete AV block. Yeah, uh, and you, you if there's flutter waves, you're looking to see them. Am I, am I right? Yeah, you'll be able to see flutter waves. Um, you'll be able to see if it goes to just in a regular rhythm with no yeah. P wave activity. You'll see that for AF. It'll just go back into sinus if it's a. You know, like an SVT sinus kind of picture. Um, and um, yeah, it's a diagnostic tool. Mm-hmm. Don't think of it as a treatment. Yeah, it's, it's there to give you a diagnosis so you know what you're managing. Mm-hmm. I would give a couple of cautions with adenosine. So first of all, absolutely only give it if you know what you're doing. Um, when you're giving it, um, when you, you want a big cannula, as big a cannula as you can get, and when you're flushing the cannula after you give the adenosine, use at least 20 mils of saline given very quickly. Give that big flush, push that drug right around to the heart because it's, it's only a very short half So you want, and if you give a big flush, um, you'll, you'll find more often than not that first dose of adenosine works. You if know, you flush it properly. If you flush it properly, yeah. yeah. I used to find, you know, uh, when I was first given the denosine challenges. Three and four doses before yeah. you. Yeah, and then as soon as um, one of my consultants taught me the, the trick of using a, a big flush, you know, first dose works. Funny that. <laughs> most, most of the time, certainly. Um, the other caution I would give, there are some special circumstances where adenosine is not safe. Now, we're talking about patients with Wolf Parkinson White who are not in just an SVT. So if you have someone who's got unusual cardiac history, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Wolf Parkinson White or some kind of other rhythm issue, and you're not sure, don't do it. Don't do it. Right? You're not giving adenosine to someone who's unstable. You're giving adenosine to someone who is stable as a diagnostic tool. So if you're not sure, don't, don't do it. it. Speak to someone. Yes. I That's think that goes, goes back to our know what you're doing with this kind of thing. Because certainly I, as a very junior doctor, was not comfortable. And I think the only times I am comfortable as a kind of acute medical registrar giving it now and then is when I'm pretty sure I'm dealing with a standard SVT mm-hmm. um, or a flutter, you know, a fast rhythm, as we were initially saying, I'm not too sure about and I'm trying to see flutter. But again, I don't do it that often. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, final note on that, I suppose, we're not condoning it, uh, running around the wards with vials of adenosine, but is can be an exceptionally useful diagnostic tool in some circumstances. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just make sure you've got all the monitoring and that you've got someone who knows how to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know where your defib is. And you know where your defib is, yeah. But they've been listening to this talk. They should already know where their defib is. Um, they paused and went to talk to their recess officer. Um, so are we moving on from there? We can move on from there. So we kind of segued into SVTs. So um, when we're talking about SVTs, you're talking about you get shown the CCG. It's probably, um, we'll say stereotypically, young female, 
woman in her um, late 20s, early 30s who's had some palpitations come into the department. You've got a narrow complex rhythm that's 150 beats per minute. You're not sure what it is. Now, that is a supraventricular tachycardia because it's a tachycardia that's not originating from the ventricles. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's above it's the in ventricles. the name. Yep, yep, exactly. Um, when, you're talking, when we're talking about SVTs, you know, when we're teaching medical students, etc., we're normally referring to the atrial ventricular reentry tachycardias mm-hmm. or the atrial ventricular nodal reentry tachycardias, which give you that regular narrow complex appearance. Um, these rhythms generally fall into the category of uh, nuisance rhythms, I would okay. say, rather than them being life-threatening. They are nuisance. But they can they can cause pain. They can make people feel very symptomatic. Mm-hmm. Um, what you'll find, now, these would be generally the patients that would end up getting an adenosine challenge. Um, and what you'll find is it might terminate the rhythm. I think that's the that's the scenario I'm most used to using adenosine in. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what do you do with these patients? Um, now, we're making a lot of assumptions with this scenario. We're assuming that the patient... We're keeping it simple. We're keeping it simple. We're assuming that the patient's come in because they've had palpitations. They've had this fast heart rate. You've Something's happened. You've either done vagal maneuvers and it's terminated, or you've done adenosine and it's terminated, mm-hmm. or even watching the monitor and it's just terminated on its own. Right? So basics, check the thyroid function, check their electrolytes. All the stuff we've said. Yeah. Um, if this is their first ever episode, mm-hmm. so the guidance um, would say you can let these people away home. I think an outpatient 72-hour tape is reasonable. Advise them to come back if it happens again. Yep. If it's a second episode or more, you, know, you, you can refer them for us to see them at outpatient clinic. We'll um, get them an echo. Mm-hmm. We'll you know, chat to them about the family history and other potential triggers, etc. Mm-hmm. And we can think about uh, doing further EP studies if it's indicated. Okay. Right. Um, these kind of patients can benefit from a beta blocker as well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, certainly a beta blocker would be relatively benign intervention if there's no reason for them not to be on it. Your SVT patients are generally going to be you know, quite... They're not, they're not going to be unwell. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's, uh, that's fair to say. Um so I don't know if there's any, is there anything else you want me to mention about those not, ones? Or? No, 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 not particularly. I, I think we're probably fair to move on from mm-hmm. our, our common arrhythmias people will be seeing in the ward to perhaps some of the scarier ones, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so by scarier ones, we're talking about the broad complex rhythms. Um, yes, that's yes. what I said. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Same scenario, you're sitting in medical receiving. Handed an ECG. You're handed an ECG, and you see this regular, broad, complex, scary-looking rhythm. Where's this patient? Yes. Take me to them. Yes, exactly. That should be your first thought. What's the blood pressure? Yes. Do all those things. Now, if this patient is unstable, um, what do you think you're going to be needing to do, Daniel? Uh, I'm going to go to my ALS guidelines, <laughs> and if I have an unstable, broad, complex tachycardia, uh, I, I think we're looking to shock these patients. Usually. Yeah. Um, and uh, yep, so that's a double two, double two. Get your arrest yes, team there. Ab- absolutely. Um, what you'll find if you go to phone um, one of us mm-hmm. is we might not be in the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not perhaps not a very helpful thing to say, but the reality is we're probably not in the building. So mm-hmm. this is a scenario that you may well have to deliver the shock yourself mm-hmm. um, with the support of the senior team members that are there and anaesthetics if required. And all, all the more reason to familiarise yourself with your guidelines and this equipment. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is why we keep doubling down on that. So mm-hmm. um, I know I always remember if they've got a pulse, I was just about to say, on you go. It's synchronized shocks. Yes. So work out where your sync button is before this scenario happens, because it's a very stressful thing to have to work out if you don't know where that button is. Yes. Um, so 
if what we're saying is if our, if our patients, even if it's something like VT, so we're talking about a broad complex tachycardia where the patient has a pulse but is becoming unstable and we think we have to shock them, blood pressure is dropping, you've got signs of, you know, the, the other general signs of uh, becoming more unwell. Um, it's a synchronized DC cardioversion we're doing. And if they are, if we're in a cardiac arrest situation, it doesn't need to be a connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's our takeaway messages for yeah. you. Of course, cardiac um, situations are a different paradigm, different different guidelines. <laughs> and it's, it's, again, we're going back to basics when we're approaching all these patients. Mm-hmm. The ECG, broad complex tachycardia, well, unwell. Mm-hmm. Um, what if they have a pulse um, like that? They've got a tachy, they've got a pulse. They've got a broad complex tachycardia, and they're relatively well. Yeah. So the first thing you're going to be looking at is. is um, well, I just say, are they well? Yeah. So what, what if, if they're are? just sitting there and you're going, oh, that's, that looks like VT, but they've got a, yeah. they've got a pulse. What, what are we looking at doing there? You've got a little bit of time to think. Um, you can think, is this actually VT? Okay. Right. Now, by that, I mean, you should have access to older ECGs. Mm-hmm. Um, if the morphology looks like a left bundle branch block on the mm-hmm. ECG you're holding, and it looks the same as previous, previous ones, then it may well be... AF with aberrant conduction, or AF with left bundle branch block, or AF with right bundle branch block. So let's 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 take it back a bit. We've we've been handed that what we think is a VT ECG. Um, we go and see the patient. It, we can, it's confirmed. It looks like it is VT. Um, it's going exceptionally fast, but the patient is sitting there with a reasonable blood pressure. We don't need to immediately leap in. They're not unstable with a shock. I guess my brain goes to chemical cardioversion. Mm-hmm. Again, I think we have to highlight these patients are unwell, real potential to go off, mm-hmm. shouldn't be going for our lunch breaks. They, they still need things done immediately. Yeah. But I guess I'm thinking about chemical cardioversion in a safe environment mm-hmm. um, on monitoring. Yeah. Yeah. And your chemical cardi- cardioversion, your drug of choice would be IV amiodarone. Yep. Yeah, that would be the one that we would, uh, we would advocate you use. Similar to the adenosine, as big as cannula as possible. Yeah, can yeah. be given peripherally. It can be given peripherally, but you do want a good cannula. Yes, um, absolutely. Cause a nasty phlebitis if it yes. gets uh, if extra busy. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Um, so, but in emergencies, can be given through a large, reliable peripheral cannula. Um, usually, anticubital fossa, green or grey, ideally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess same things. If this patient's already had bloods done, I'm looking for that magnesium, those electrolytes, the TFTs, mm-hmm. and I'm probably warranted in speaking to cardio as soon as possible. I think that'd be reasonable. Yeah, yeah. You, you want you want these patients up in a CCU if it's, uh, if it's you know remotely um, if, if it's reasonable for them to be in that environment. Yeah, you want that's where you want them. Without us getting any more in the weeds, are we? Do we have anything else to say about fast heart rates? Um, I think we've covered sinus tachys, yeah. we've covered atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, a touch on SVT, and some VT. Does that cover most? For that our, covers our most because the only other fast rhythm, well, the, yeah, the only other fast rhythm really would be your VF, and that's an arrest. It is, so um, goes beyond the scope of this paper. <laughs> and um, yeah, and yeah, we could talk about things like tersads, but again, that's... I think you're going perhaps another an, perhaps another episode. Yes. Um, so shall we talk about slow heart rates? Yeah. So we can go back to your scenario. You're sitting in your IAU doctor's room, and your support worker brings you an ECG. This one's um, only going at thirty beats a minute. Yes. So again, you're. Um, Are they well? Yeah. So always take it back to first principles. Yeah. Presumably, the support worker, if they've come in and they're looking very calm, 
you would hope that the patient is well. Um, but you know, ask how they are, go and see the patient, check what their hemodynamic status is. There's a few different things that you know, slow heart rhythms can be. Mm-hmm. You're talking about heart blocks. Uh, first degree heart block, you wouldn't have a rate in the 30s. And first degree heart block, I wouldn't get that excited about. Maybe check the medications. Yeah, check the medications. Um, but it's not, yeah, I wouldn't say it's an emergency outside of the context of someone who's got aortic valve endocarditis, which is for a whole, lots, different, conversation. A whole different conversation. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> first degree, we're happy to put to the, the side just yeah, there. It's not going to give us that kind of heart rate. Yeah. Um, second degree? Second degree, so you've got your moments type one or banky back. Uh, which is your, uh, unfortunately, we, we don't have ECGs that we can put up. No, on this is an audio medium, yes. unfortunately. Uh, but I'm assuming that um, people will be familiar. People will be familiar with what these look like. So uh, your Venki back is actually um, lower risk of deteriorating to asystole than your Mobitz type 2. So your Mobitz type 2 is a, a higher degree of block um, and it would cause you the same amount of concern as a complete heart block. Mm-hmm. Um, all these patients, if this is new, uh, all these patients, patients should be monitored. You want to see what the blood pressure is. And yes, as as you say, second degree heart block, uh, moments type 2, has a high risk of deteriorating into complete heart block. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, that's and, why we're um, more worried. Yeah, um, and, and, and worse rhythms. Yeah, yeah. asystole, yeah. Um, now, what do you do for these people? Again, take it back to mm-hmm. first principles. You can well get those bloods well. off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, well on well. We talk about if they're well first okay yeah go go for the nicer but yeah. nicer version first so if they're well you've got time mm-hmm. um you can try and work out why this has happened so you're going to get those buds off you're going to check those electrolytes check the um meds. check the meds yeah now, the thing about the electrolytes is if your potassium's high or low mm-hmm. correct that yep that could correct the rhythm if your magnesium's in, it, in his boots get it up and monitor them appropriately yes monitor them appropriately well, they should be on monitoring anyway someone with complete heart block should be in a coronary care setting. I guess that's what I'm there. saying. Yeah. Uh, look at the medications. Are they on beta blockers? Yep. Are they on other things that can cause heart block issues? So you know, things like denepazil. Okay. Be a potential option. Yeah, so we're approaching them. We're getting those electrolytes off, checking their meds. I guess first thing comes to my mind, I think, like beta blockers, but we'd be aware of other things that can yeah. cause this sort of thing. Um, and yes, if they remain well... Yeah, if they remain well, um, then they need to be in a coronary care setting, and mm-hmm. we need to be we need to think about are they going to need permanent pacing? But that would be something that your local cardiology team would decide. Our friendly neighbourhood cardiologists. Um, <laughs> okay, what if the patient's unwell with a bradycardia? Yeah, so if they're unwell, so you're talking about someone who's um, dropping their blood pressure, dropping blood pressure, lowering the you know fainting. Yeah, yeah. syncope when they try and stand up, mm-hmm. sound chest pain. Yeah, that's what, that's what yeah, I'm thinking about. Yeah. So, ALS guidelines. Double Again, two, double two if required. Double two, double two if required. Um, atropine, um, you could make an argument that it won't work in complete heart block. It probably shouldn't. It, well, it probably won't work in complete heart block. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's reasonable to try. Um, you can, well, if you've got anaesthetics there, they can use medications like ephedrine as well to try and get the heart rate up transiently. Again, not something we're condoning our average no, friendly because this is ward doctor does yeah. these are what you want to do is get the help there as we've said and get set up to think about um transcutaneous pacing mm-hmm. right. which again something that i think 
makes a lot of ward doctors even think of myself mm-hmm. quite anxious mm-hmm. um so getting the help yeah. so mm-hmm. these patients we need to get them back into a rhythm that is perfusing their brain their organs and and, and keeping them going yeah. so transcutaneous pacing again knowing where your transcutaneous pacemaker uh sorry pacer mm-hmm. defib is yeah. um and getting the help you need to do that as soon as possible yes and knowing how to get it onto those settings because some defibs it's not immediately obvious um now, the other thing, the other important thing with this is as well as the pads, you need the ECG leads on for the defib for uh, for pacing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, although it's a much lower power shock than what you'd be getting for defibrillating someone, it still hurts. Yeah, and you're going to be delivering... Uh, you're going to be giving Regular them a heart rate. Yeah, you're going to want to be giving them a heart rate of 60 beats per minute. They're going to be getting a little shock every second. It's going to be sore. Anesthetic support. Yes, anesthetic support. And a more definitive way of managing that rhythm as soon as you can. And informing the patient that this is happening. Mm-hmm. If they're well enough to you know, see that information in that this yeah, is going yeah. to hurt and mm-hmm. it, it is absolutely necessary just now. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we will make you as comfortable as possible and then we will stop it as soon as possible. But now this, yeah, this, yeah, need, yeah. this needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And in that scenario, give us a call. Yeah. Um you know, you'll be wanting to try and get yes, you know, certainly in the setting you've got a stable patient, you'll be you'll have time to get history, you can find out like have you had some chest pain? Yeah, have you um, started a new medication breath- recently? Yeah, or have you been more breathless? Yeah. Right? All these kind of questions you can ask. Um, now, the other thing to mention with this is you will be tempted to check a troponin. But if someone. <laughs> We've asked so- a forbidden question when to do a troponin. <laughs> yeah, so you will be tempted to check a troponin. Um, the troponin's not telling you has this person had a heart attack. No, it's it has to be taken in context. Yeah, it? and if someone's been in complete heart block for a few days, they're going to have a raised troponin. So you know, take that into context. Um, if you think they've had a heart attack, yeah, fair enough. You can treat it as that. Um, and if you're not sure, if you're not sure, speak to a senior. Speak to cardiology. Senior, yeah, yeah. Well, cer- you know, certainly someone who's getting transcutaneously paced. Uh, no, absolutely. Called, we need to be called. <laughs> I, I, I think. I, I think it's ACS medications are not without risk. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And I think if you're ever in a situation where you're unsure about feeling pressure to make a decision, mm-hmm. whether that be because of high troponin or you know whatever the situation, it, don't feel afraid to reach out for help before starting those medications because yeah. they are. It's it's quite potent uh, anticoagulation at the end of the day, and they're not without risk. Yeah, and I think we've all seen when some some people have come to. Uh, minor or sometimes major harm from these things so they are they are big decisions and if you're feeling in a position not to make that mm-hmm. do do seek support yeah. um again a- anything else on slow heart rates we've talked a bit about in, 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 in initial assessment well unwell mm-hmm. initial medications i think the only one that's in the initial als guideline is atropine am i right yeah it's the only ones there um and you know if we're getting into the region of using atropine you really should be getting other help yeah um Again, indications for transcutaneous pacing and whether that patient then goes on to require TPL or whether they require a, a, a permanent pacemaker. Um, they, they will require definitive management under cardiology. Yeah, so we should be getting called, um, coming in to see them and thinking about, um, you know, we don't, we don't always have to put a TPL in these patients. Um, isoprenaline is a fantastic drug. That yeah, which I, I've seen more and more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a fantastic drug that will keep these patients stable 
but um, yeah, you're gonna, you're, there's scenarios where you're going to need the transcutaneous pacing to get to get us to that stage. Uh, and again, that is, uh, if we're thinking eyes of Prenlin, that's a CCU decision. Yes, yeah, yeah. You don't need, you don't need to be starting that in medical admissions. Yes. So the other the, the um, other slow heart rate to mention again is your um, your atrial fibrillation. Okay. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. So someone who's an AF with a rate of thirty to forty. Um not very exciting, just the same principles apply, you know. Well unwell. Yeah, well unwell. Um if they've got a slow heart rate, if they've not been on anticoagulation before, I would make an argument that you hang fire on starting it in case they're going to need paste. Okay. Um yeah, it's not going to be a disaster if they've got anticoagulation on board mm-hmm. and we need to put a line in, but it's uh, easier if they've not. Otherwise, um, we've talked through, I think we've talked to mostly the RAS guidelines of our common presentations, our fast heart rates, our slow heart rates. Our takeaway message, I think we've repeated several times, is it depends on whether the patient is well or unwell. Most of the time, if they're unwell, you are seeking senior help, and that is usually in the form of a peri-arrest and arrest team. Um, you will often need the use of specialist drugs or um, defibrillators, um, which again, people may not be familiar with, so getting that senior help. And I think we were just going to briefly, from our cardiologist, people are often confused or, or are not sure when to call cardiology. Mm-hmm. So do you want to speak on that a little bit? Yeah, so I think for um, for a lot of these patients, in fact, even the ones that are, are unwell, um, if I was the gen med reg on in receiving and there was a patient like this in my department, I would want to know. Um, so definitely escalate it to your immediate seniors in an emergency like setting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Daniel would like to know. So um, the ones that I am, that we should get called about, I would say the broad complex tachys or people in heart block that are needing that extra support. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the ones that we are going to be need, needing to be admitting to CCU. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I think it's reasonable to call us if you've got someone who you've tried the initial steps, you know, you've um, given them... Um, you know, you're referring more to our well patients here who have tried the initial... Yeah, you've tried, you've tried the initial stuff, you've got them on um, a beta blocker and digoxin and their heart rate's still not coming down and you're really not sure, you know... Um, yeah, if they're well, it can, it can wait until working hours. Yes. Yeah, but... Um, so I suppose the ones to call us about overnight mm-hmm. would be the ventricular rhythms, definitely, mm-hmm. and heart blocks. Yeah, uh, we'll need to need to know about these because we might need to do some extra steps. Yeah. Yes, certainly. I have yet to uh, to do it. have anything to do with temporary pacing lines, and I I hope not to in the immediate future. Um, lovely. So, a- any final words on our on tachycardia arrhythmias? Uh, so. Don't panic. Do the basics. If you need help, ask for it. Refer to your guidelines. Refer to your guidelines. Do not be afraid to put calls out for unstable patients. Yeah. And in people who have been unwell with rhythm issues, um, or I'd add people who have you know, who have unusual um, conduction, mm-hmm. like Wolf Parkinson's white patients that you might not be sure of, or people with long QT syndrome, these kind of things. Ultimately, we are on call for a reason, so you can give us a call if you're not sure. Thank you so much, Dave, again for joining us. Uh, This has been The Medical Take, a podcast for the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow. We would love it if you followed the college on Twitter at RCPS Glasgow, and we'll see you next time. Mm